Good morning. So, um, as a courtesy to the people sitting around you, would you check to make sure that your phone is in the do not disturb position? So, um, William Budge has recovered from COVID and is back here with Olivia and Tim and John, Richard Wingfield, all the other people who make this possible. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we've gotten in this habit of beginning in silence. So take a deep breath. Be in the space. And our intention is that all of creation benefits from what we do here today. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Ordinary Life um, had its first Sunday on June the 6th, 1999. That's a long time ago. And our, um, you're welcome. Um, our, our agenda here for several months was to enlarge on what I called the principles of ordinary life. I had come up with these during a four-year hiatus I had taken from teaching here, and it occurred to me this week that there are many of you who likely have never heard or seen these principles listed in one place all at once. Now, I want to make two uh, disclaimer clauses, although these... Um, the way of stating these is original with me. This is not original material. Um, I, I call them truths about life as it is. And they are, very briefly, there's no life in negativity. We have a moral obligation to be happy. This is the one I've gotten the most pushback on. Our relationship to life's difficulties belongs to us. We are what we think. We're not what we think we are, but what we think we are. So watch your thoughts. Life is wonderful. Love is what changes the course of our world. The fundamental purpose of life is emotional and spiritual growth. There is only the present. We get what we give, and we are 100% responsible for our lives. So for many, many weeks, I tried to elaborate on these and to develop an understanding of the person, human personality that would be useful for the journey. Now, again, these principles are nothing new. You find these in the teachings of Jesus. You find them in the teachings of Buddha. Um, as a matter of fact, they are in one form or another in all the living great religious traditions. 
So a lot of water has passed under the bridge and over various dams since that June Sunday 23 years ago. Life is so much different than it was, and yet not so much different either. One of the ways that life is different is that it is even more complex and fast-paced now than it was. Um, I have to admit, I don't think I could have begun teaching this class if I didn't have a computer. And the first computer that I got was a Mac in a square box, kind of. It was a, uh, I called it a Mr. Mac. And I don't think I had, I, if I had email, it was like something like AOL or something like that. And you said you use a modem external to the computer that made a funny noise. So Google searches were not what they were then. So I did a Google search to try to find out how many Starbucks there were in Houston when I started teaching. And I, it's, hard to, it's hard to determine. There may have been four. But that one of them was like up in the Champions area, like not, not really in Houston. Um, and that one came in to Houston in 1994. So now there are 148 Starbucks in Houston. Houston, Texas has more Starbucks than any city in the United States. Even more than Seattle. <laughs> now the reason I mention this is that when you go into Starbucks, you're going to spend a lot of money, but when you go to, into Starbucks and order an organic venti latte decaf vanilla extra hot with 2%, you have just made more decisions than your grandparents made in a week. <laughs> Seriously. And now, with email, Facebook, Zoom, Instagram, and the like, many of us connect with more people online and in person in a month than our ancestors connected with in their entire lives. Recent biblical research in archaeology has uncovered a Zoom session of the Last Supper. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, Judas, you're on mute. <laughs> so no wonder we are overwhelmed. No wonder we can be knocked off our emotional balance so easy. No wonder we more often than not walk around just unaware. So I saw a program that I mentioned to several of you this week on Frontline that disturbed me greatly. It was about the rise of far-right groups of all types intent on disrupting, if not actually destroying, our democracy. And one of the things that contributes, just one of the things that contributes to this rise of hate groups is sadly seeds planted indirectly in and in an increasing form by a corrupt form of Christianity. So I'm going to do an experiment today. 
Each of you, because you have come today, has won an absolutely free gift. So each of you is going to get a fountain pen. They are being distributed now. And each of you is going to get an 8 by 5 card. I think, are those 8 by 5 Okay. And here's what I want you to do. On the top of your card, I want you to write Christianity and me. And I want you to write just the first thing that comes to mind. I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. And those of you who are watching at home, I'd like for you to do that as well. Um, write down whatever comes to mind when you see or think of the phrase Christianity and me. In a minute, I'll give you um, a way to get that information to me. Did you not get a pen? The pins are coming over here. They're on their way. You'll get a pin. I have no vested interest in your answers, so don't be afraid of hurting my feelings. It doesn't work? We need another pen up here. All right, got one. In television and radio, we call this dead space. I hope you at home can tolerate that for a while. A couple of minutes. And, and uh, when you're done writing, what I would like for you to do is draw a line across the card under what you've written. And the reason I'm asking you to do that is because if you add anything else to the card that may be a response to what you hear me say today, I'd like to know that that's where that came from and not your initial thoughts about that, okay? Now, 
Now, when you have done with that, I would like for you to turn the card over. And at the top of the card, write the word concerns. And under that, besides what you think about and for your immediate family, when you get up in the morning, what are your initial concerns? What occupies your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you concerned about? Ma'am? Yeah. Well, after that sort of thing. Now, you can continue to add to this during the time today, but when you've, when you've written down what those concerns are, draw a line across the card and then write the word questions. And um, what I would like to ask you to do here is to write down any questions that you have for Holly or me so that we can peruse those. Uh, questions about what we've taught or haven't taught. Questions about the class. Whatever. Now, if you are at home and so desire, you remember uh, Christianity and me, then concerns and questions, and you can put those in an email and send them to me at billcurley at mac.com. And uh, we're going to collect the cards today before you leave. I mean, we'll get those on the way out. And if those of you here have additions that you want to make, you can also email those to me. And let's say that Thursday of this week will be the deadline to get all of this information in because that will give Holly and me a chance to collate it and to begin to see what kind of responses we want to make. Okay? You with it? That okay? <clears throat> so when we first regathered in person back in June, I said that in addition to having a different, different kind of rhythm in, uh, to Holly and me teaching, um, we were going to allow space for anyone here who wanted to, to issue calls for two things. One would be a call to mission. And you heard uh, Paul Richard Kwan do that at the beginning of class. If you're interested in participating in Afghan ministry, you can, you can do that. What the ordinary women are doing in the church with Boynton is an excellent example of somebody, a group who's issued a call for ministry. So if you have something on your heart that you think would result in good works as a result of what you hear and hear, or you just want to announce it, um, let me know, and you can do it here. Uh, a call commute for community might be expended to create a group of some sort. Maybe you'd like to start a dinner group or uh, a book group. We've already got a book group, but if you'd like to start a new one, and can people join the 
book Ruby in existence? Okay. So, George, hold your hand up. Anybody who's interested in joining a book group, uh, see him and you can do better. I got this this week from one of you. The difficulty I'm having is that when the lesson ends, I find I have questions, ideas I'd like clarified or gone into in more detail, but I'm left with only my own thoughts, some clear understanding, many others muddled and confused. I started listening to the audio book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, and I have loads of questions I'd like to ask and reactions I'd like to share with others. Are there any book groups, yes, or meetings, either online or in person, providing opportunities for engagement with kindred souls. So yes, there is an existing book group. We used to have a discussion group that started right after this class and um, two things happened, COVID, and then the person who convened that group m moved out of town. So how many of you would like a discussion group to one, two, three, four, uh, all right, hold your hands up. Which one of you would like to convene such a group? Right. And if you so desire, I'll find you another room here in this building where you can go so you won't be bothered. But hold your hand up. So would all of you who are interested convene with this woman right after class today? Five minutes will be enough just to kind of get the lay of the land and we could get something started there. And if there's something else that you would like to do, just let me know and we will get it going. It's always interesting to ask which one of you would like to convene such a group. So last week I spoke to you about faith. And um, the most important things to hang on to what I said last week about faith are these two things. First, thinking that faith means believing things to be true did not come into existence until after the Reformation. Up until then, faith had an entirely different meaning. It took a different meaning after the Reformation. And second, truth did not get confused with factuality until the Enlightenment. And um, that happened in the 18th century, so that's relatively recent. And now you know that we are living in a culture, some refer to it as postmodern, but some of it are also referring to it as post-truth culture, because uh, if you remember about five or six years ago, a phrase was introduced to our vocabulary called alternative facts, which is a strange thing if you have a scientific point of view. And, and, and then I spoke with you about the importance how we both see and respond to what is. And I said, and I based this on the works of two people who have had influence with me, Richard Niebuhr and Marcus Borg, that there are three ways of seeing what is and responding to it. One is to see things as hostile. The second is to respond to what is with indifference. And the third is to respond to what is with um, grace or as gift. Now, if we see what is as hostile, our response is going to be one of two things. We're going to be either defensive or we're going to move um, to be aggressive, to remove what we see as a threat. And I also said that most of us, whether we want to admit it or not, 
have been trained to see the world as hostile. And this is true especially if you have a history in the church or with Christianity. That's why I wanted you to draw that line under that first thing. Now, I know that our heads, I know your head, uh, wants to disagree with that. We want to be nice and polite and believe that we're not in that hostile group. But I want you to hear me out. Because I think things work at us at an unconscious level. So let's go back. Let's go back to that time when I said the Reformation introduced something into the Christian religion that had not been there before. Now, sure, there had been disagreements, heresy trials, executions, all the messy stuff that went with that. But with the Reformation came along an intense emphasis on certitude. The rallying cry of the Reformation was, the just shall live by faith. But whose faith? So the Lutherans had a way of defining faith, and the Calvinists had a way of defining faith, and the Anabaptists had a way of defining faith, and so forth and so forth. And what happened if you didn't have this faith? Well, you would die and go to hell, right? That's what they taught. Or you would live in fear of hell until you died. Because you never knew if you believed the right stuff or not. So maybe that's too far back. Let's go back to the time when ordinary life began. What was going on in organized Christianity in this country? Now, this didn't happen everywhere. It didn't, ha it didn't happen in most urban metropolitan areas, but it did happen in places that were more rural and out, just like the great fundamentalist modernist discussion in the 1900s with an organizational skill that conservatives have and that progressives don't an increasing number of both protestant and catholic leaders began to align themselves with what i would call neoconservative ideology this was the time of jerry falwell jerry falwell was the founder of a movement called the moral majority and shortly after its founding, pundits said it is neither. Meaning it's not moral or a majority, but it is a majority. It's a growing majority. Uh, and, and they stressed what they call family values. Remember that phrase? What they downplayed was what I would call biblical community values. They supported wars of choice, defended torture, opposed environmental protection, seemed more concerned about protecting the rich from taxes than liberating the poor from poverty or addressing the growing expression of racism. Now, this movement has gained traction and it has gained speed in our time. And you can see it in the current concern that is going on about abortion. There's a concern for unborn human life but there's not an equal concern for born human life, either here or elsewhere. And uh, I remember how Falwell and others have talked about what a threat gay people were to marriage. 
And that is the very issue that is dividing the Methodist Church right this moment as we speak. They seem to overlook the fact that heterosexual people are damaging marriage at a far greater rate <laughs> than gay couples could ever hope to do. They have regulated, uh, relegated women to second-class roles both within and without the church. They have protected pedophile priests and clergy who abuse parishioners, and I could go on. Now, that sounds like all bad news, but there's also wonderful news because at the same time that this has been going on, now remember we're trying to address a split. That was on the right. At the same time, people like Marcus Borg, Shelby Spong, John Dominic Crossan, they've been in this very room to speak. Richard Orr's Center for Action and Contemplation began. It speaks to tens of thousands of people. And these networks, and there are many of them, are mostly outside church structures. I call them para-church structures. They're there. They're alive. They're well. As a matter of fact, they're flourishing. But we don't hear about them from within inside the church very much. And these parachurch organizations and the people in them are saying, look, there's something wrong with how we've been doing Christianity. And that is, why is what I'm wondering is, why is that and what can be done about it? And I would like Ordinary Life, of course, to be part of addressing this kind of issue and leading to healing in the broader community. Now, I mentioned in here some time ago that I recently reread Harvey Cox's book, The Future of Faith. And, and uh, he says that there have been three ages in the Christian movement. The first was the age of faith. Now, uh, I think I'm accurate when I say that in the past two plus years that Holly and I have taught here together, we have spoken out of the context of that, the age of faith. Whether we've been teaching about Buddhism or whatever, we've been doing that. And certainly in beginning to go through the Gospel of John, we're speaking out of that age, the age of faith. But in the fourth century, that age of faith went away and it got replaced by the age of belief. This started with Constantine, it intensified with the Reformation. And so now we are in this third stage. And Harvey Cox calls it the age of spirit. Um, I'm not comfortable with that phrase, so what I started referring to it as is kind of a, a liminal space. We're in between a time where something has come to an end and something clear has not yet taken its place. We're in the between space, this liminal space. And what you see in American culture is an intense struggle for those who want to go back to the age of beliefs where they are sure and certain that what they believe is true so that they can be right. And then there are others who are more comfortable with paradox, contradiction, and ambiguity. So something new wants to be born, and to quote Brian McLaren, Giving birth, as any mother will tell you, is no Sunday school picnic. So I'm saying that we don't need a new set of beliefs. What we need is a new way of believing. 
And last Sunday, I ended enumerating, at least from a, quote, Christian point of view, what I thought those essential beliefs were, and it has to do with God, Jesus, and the Bible. Very, very simple things. Now, so far, I've said a lot that gives us a lot of territory to cover over the years to come. So I want to focus on that one thing that I said that has caused us to see what is as hostile. To be Christian, at least in the world most of us were born into and lived in, has required people to believe a very specific storyline. Now, I believe it is impossible <clears throat> for anyone living in the United States not to know something about Jesus. It may be inaccurate, but there is no way that you can get through living in American culture, going through Easter and Christmas without knowing something about Jesus. And I also think that it is impossible for anyone in this country, whether they have ever set foot inside a church or not, not to know something of this storyline that I'm about to, to give you. We use it to understand history. We use it to understand our own experience. Um, ever heard the phrase, somebody's got to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps? It comes from this storyline. Now, so if we're going to have a new way of believing, we have to know and then question this story. Now, you know the story. God created the heaven and the earth, and there was a time when everything was perfect. And then came along something called the fall. There's no uh, fall or original sin in the Bible. We'll get to that in a minute. But we've been told that they are fundamental to Christian belief. We live in a fallen state in a fallen world. I can't tell you how many times as a child growing up in a church filled with people who loved me and had no intent on terrifying me, I heard these phrases. <clears throat> All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Heard this before? You have? So um, I remember uh, we were taught in the church where I grew up, very evangelical church, to win souls for Jesus. And there was a poster on the wall in one of the classes. They were all over the church. Now, Google this, and you can do this too. You will see hundreds of these things, the ABCs of salvation. By following this formula, there is a chance of being saved from an eternity of burning in hell. A chance. Now, depending on your religious tradition, you can get out of your God-forsaken lostness by believing or experiencing redemption, justification, atonement. And if that happens, then you get to go to heaven when you die. Now, Brian McLaren, um, he outlines this story in uh, these steps. Six-line diagram. don't know if you can see this or not. There is Eden. 
and then there's the fall, and then there is condemnation, and then after a long period of time, there is salvation, which results in heaven for some and damnation for others. Now, I don't know about you, but it looks to me like there's a lot more suffering at the end of the story than there is at the beginning. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you a secret. Can you keep a secret? Do you promise? Is that you promise not to keep it? You know the quickest way to make sure that something gets told all over is to tell somebody, don't tell anybody. So I'm going to tell you a secret. The words original sin and fall are not in the Bible. And neither is a doctrine called the substitutionary theory of atonement. This storyline is not in the Bible. It can be read back into the Bible, but you can't read it out of the Bible if you know how to read the Bible. The uh, notion of original sin that resulted in the fall uh, came from this guy, Augustine of Hippo. I want you to notice when he lived, he lived in the early part of the 5th century, and he is responsible for shaping the doctrine of the Christian church more than any other human being other than Paul. Okay? By the way, the word hippo in his name does not refer to his size, but from where he was from. He was uh, from a Roman area that we now call Algeria. His life's fascinating, actually. I, I could spend a lot of time talking about Augustine. Uh, he was always tied to his mother's apron strings. And um, she was the one who demanded that he leave the woman that he had been living with for 12 years and find a proper wife. And um, he was just racked with grief because of his uncontrollable sexual appetite, which caused him to develop the doctrine of original sin. He thought that because he had this uncontrollable sexual appetite that there must be something wrong with him from the beginning. And he began to look for it in the Bible and he found it, ah, maybe. So original sin is a sexually transmitted theological doctrine, okay? <laughs> but he's the one from whom we get this concept. It's not in the Bible, Okay? Now, there is another guy to be aware of, and this is a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. And I want you to notice when he lived. He lived from 1033 to 1109. And uh, you've heard me say this before. He was responsible for writing the most successful piece of bad theology that has ever been written. This is the guy who gave us the substitutionary theory of atonement, sometimes called the satisfaction theory. We were taught this in seminary, by the way. Now, this doctrine states that God was so angry with human beings 
that he, this God is always masculine God. He wanted to kill all people on the planet, but he was in a box. He had promised since killing all the people at Noah's time that he couldn't do that again. So he had to come up with another plan. And the other plan was that he would have his son born into the world and grow up and be executed as a sacrifice for everybody else, as a substitution for everybody else, the substitutionary theory of atonement. Jesus is a substitute for us. Somehow this is going to satisfy God's anger. Now, again, you can read this back in the Bible <coughs> if you don't know how to read the Bible. I want you to notice that this doctrine, the substitutionary doctrine of atonement, is one of the five central doctrines of fundamentalism today. Okay? This is what fundamentalism says you have to believe in order to be saved. And I, I remember... Uh, Richard Rohr saying to a group of us, no one would go out on a second date with a God like this. <laughs> now, the word substitutionary in Jewish ritual did not ma mean making the sacrificial lamb suffer. Nor was the lamb a substitute for anybody. The word sacrifice means none of that. The word sacrifice means to make holy, to make sacred. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time talking about both these characters. They're very interesting, got a lot of stuff. But this is, they contributed to this unconscious storyline, our unconscious thinking about God and Christianity that's profoundly uh, affected most everybody in Western civilization whether they go to church or not. You know this storyline. But what is the, Jesus, the Jewish Jesus storyline? Now, I wish that I had uh, submitted this manuscript to Michael Morewood for correction before today. I think he could have helped correct some of my God language, but I didn't do that. I wanted that because every time we use the word God, there is this reflex to think out there, up there, away from us. And that's not what I want to do. And second of all, I'm going to refer to some stories that are in the Hebrew Scripture. And our uh, post-enlightenment mindset makes us want to take these stories as a literal, in a literal way. And that makes us misread them. So don't hear them in a, a literal way. Hear them deeper than that. So try to keep in mind that the story is not literally true. It is truer than that. Okay? The, Jesus, the Jewish Jesus storyline begins with a man named Abraham. Now, this is just a brief summary. It's going to admit a whole lot of stuff. The story begins with God saying to Abraham, I want you to get up, I want you to get your things together, and I want you to leave home. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And I want that nation to be a blessing to the entire world. So Abraham gets up and leaves home. And this to me is the paradigm 
of what authentic faith is. You get up and you leave home and you go out for something you don't know where it is. Now, all the Jewish Jesus storyline you will find replicated in the teachings and behavior of Jesus all along the way. Jesus left home. Jesus called his disciples to leave their belonging system, leave home. There's another way. This uh, Abraham story is a great, great, great story. But I want you to notice that God isn't punishing Abraham. God isn't threatening Abraham. God is loving Abraham. And Abraham does indeed become the father of a great nation. So great indeed that they become a threat to the leader of the country where they have been taken captive. Now I want to insert that over and over, either through no fault of their own or because of their unfaithfulness, the people fall into some sort of bondage. And God, in a multitude of ways, always says to them, please come back, please come home. I love you, you are mine, I have called you by your name. So one day, a man named Moses, played by Charleston Heston, Here's a voice calling to him from a bush that is burning and not consumed. And the voice says, Moses, I want you to go to my people. And I want you to say to Pharaoh, set my people free. And again, what is on the heart of God is not punishment, not anger, but a deep desire that God's people experience freedom. Later on. Jesus will say, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I have come to tell you the truth that will set you free. There is never a word from the mouth of Jesus except for the people who thought that they were not in need of it that sounds punishing, angry, retributive, or anything. No punishment. But over and over again, either through no fault of their own or because of their faithlessness, the people fall into bondage of one kind or another. You remember when I said in talking about faith that Jesus referred to the people as having little faith as being, oh ye, adulterous generation? Yeah. He wasn't talking about sex. He was talking about people turning their backs on their true identity and calling. And at one point, one of the Jewish prophets, in order to make this point really vivid that God loves God's people, this prophet, by the name of Hosea, goes out and marries a prostitute and says, this is how much God loves you. No matter what you've done. By the, theme, by the way, this theme of Hosea is in several of the prophetic writings, particularly Ezekiel and Jeremiah. My point is that one storyline has us as pawns on a chessboard, and the other has us as creative partners with the sacred, although not very good at keeping our end of the bargain. Now, if you read the Bible from those six storylines that we all grew up with, you can find what you're looking for. 
We have to be taught how to see, not what to see. <clears throat> now, um, are we unfaithful to our identity and calling? I don't know about you, but I still have a lot of work to do. That's why I find the Enneagram and dream work and group discussion so very helpful. It's so easy for me to fall away from my true self and not see that. So it's how we deal with what is that I'm speaking to. Next week will be about hope. The six-line storyline is one that says sin in one way or another is to be punished. If not now, in the world to come. It's a very dualistic storyline. It's the way we work in this culture. We got good guys and bad guys, right and wrong, in and out, up and down. And it makes perfect sense to the ego. What the Jewish Jesus storyline believes is that what we call sin and failure is the opportunity for transformation and enlightenment. So the first storyline leads to a system of retributive justice. This is controlled 90%, 99% of human history. The Jewish Jesus storyline is one of restorative justice. The Jewish Jesus storyline is one where the message clearly is, God does not love us if we are faithful, keep our side of the relationship. Myself. God loves us so that we can be faithful to our relationship with God. Okay? Now, I'm about done. I do want you to keep some things in mind. This, uh, these talks that I'm giving uh, before Holly and I start teaching again are a reflection on and a response to a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus is presented as a boundary crosser and a barrier breaker and a healer. Not as a threatener, not as a judge, not as someone who condemns, but as someone who loves and heals and seeks to bring wholeness. And, and what Jesus says is, you're not what you think is wrong with you, and that's what the first storyline causes us to focus on. So I want to say to you, you are not what you think is wrong with you. Or if you're a narcissist, you're not what you think is right with you either. <laughs> now, those of you who grew up wounded, being wounded by messages about what all lousy, rotten, stinking sinner you are if you don't repent, and I mean now, you're in for it, may recall some of the scary ways that some of the parables and teachings of Jesus have been presented, but they have been misinterpreted. When Jesus called on people to repent, he didn't mean grovel, he meant change your mind. This requires trust. You cannot turn your life over to someone you don't trust. 
that you feel safe with. The first storyline presents us with an understanding of God or sacred mystery that isn't safe. Now, this grace isn't forced on anyone. You do have to make a personal decision about whether and how you will step into a personal relationship with the sacred. But over and over and over and over again, the Jewish Jesus storyline says, God has taken the initiative, now it's your turn. No threat. You don't have to do it, but it's there waiting if you want it. And when you do step into these, this Jewish Jesus storyline, the result or response to this is grace and gratitude and joy and peace. These are some of the things that I wanted you to get out of this talk today. The other thing that I wanted you to get out of this is an awareness that I wrote this talk just for you. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and I'll see you here next week. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>